1: Welcome back to the Dear Prudence Show once again, and as always, I am your host, Dear Prudence, also known as Mallory Ortberg. With me in the studio today is Lisa Jervis. Lisa advises social justice organizations on their technology, wrote a cookbook called Cook Food, a manual festo for easy, healthy local eating, and co-founded Bitch, feminist response to pop culture. Lisa, welcome. Also, please congratulate me on pronouncing manual festo correctly the first time. Congratulations. That was A fantastic job, and I'm so happy to be here. Thank you so much for being here. I'm so excited that you're here. I'm excited for us to just heal the world. And I also wanted to share with all of you something I've been thinking about a lot lately, which is things that I would say if I were a mysterious widow, which not that I want to marry someone who who then dies. Um, That part would be sad. But I would like to already be a mysterious widow who could say things like, you know, oh... Richard loved the water and please no more questions and I can't I'm wearing gloves or you must be mistaken I've never been to Monte Carlo. I just I I feel like I have a lot of um, dialogue ready if if that were my situation if I were essentially like Mrs. White from Clue Um, and I never get to say any of those things. Well Halloween is coming up. Halloween is coming up. What do you feel like do you feel like you'd be able to rock the mysterious widow vibe or?
3: I don't know I'm Frankly, not much of a costume person. I tend to just go for like little. No, no, no. Or I'm something. so sorry. I
1: don't mean Halloween. I mean, if you were a mysterious oh, widow, if what I w- would be your vibe? Would it be like we don't talk about the incident, or would it be you know, please meet my associate? Sort of mysterious widow situation.
3: Or do you not think about these things? I would carry um, some kind of small animal in a purse, mm-hmm. and I would tell people, "Don't speak." Please, not those another word. those are two things. Yeah, just don't, don't. No more. Yeah, I would be acutely
1: sensitive, but I would never go into specifics about what I was sensitive about. I would just always sort of like lean my head paintedly against a window and say, please, I, I can't. I've walked too far today.
3: It's too much, too yeah.
1: much. Yeah. yeah, just everything would always be too much. Um, I would always be pulling like a vial out of my purse and, and waving it under my own nose and um, alluding mysteriously to, you know, I can't be near open water anymore.
3: Yeah, just making people wonder what's in that vial. Yeah. But you'll never tell them because you're mysterious.
1: No, I would never acknowledge it in any way. And I would say things like, what vial? Richard loved vials. I don't know why his name is Richard. It's very important to me that his name is Richard. (laughs) It's a fine name. Well, okay. So that's going to be, I think, my stance today. I'm going to be approaching all these questions as a mysterious and remote and tragic widow uh, who has mystery and glamour in her past, present, and future. All right. So with that in mind, I think that we should start answering these questions.
3: And uh, would you please be so good as to read the first one? I would love to. Subject, do I tell her? Dear Prudence, my friends Anna and Kyle are close friends with Jeff, a man who raped my good friend years ago. Kyle and Jeff are best friends, even though Kyle knows what happened. My problem is that Jeff's girlfriend, Sandra, is an acquaintance. She is an outspoken feminist and often posts on social media about how important it is to cut abusive people out and hold rapists accountable. I have no idea if she knows her boyfriend is a rapist, and I'm not sure if I should tell her or not. It haunts me, and I know I would want to be told if it were me. Unfortunately, Doing so would end my friendship with Anna and Kyle, who have chosen to stand by Jeff. Am I morally obligated to tell Sandra the truth? Should I assume she knows and butt out? Can I even begin to believe Kyle's claims that Jeff has changed and reckoned with what he did?
1: Yeah, so we're just starting Ooh. with some really thorny stuff. <laughs> yeah. Um, before we kind of dive into who should the letter writer talk to, how should they talk about it? Because I, I, I do believe, you know— um, I, I don't think the answer to this is simply back off, say nothing. Um, but I think it's important to address this idea of can a person who has committed a violent act, a person who has committed sexual assault, change and reckon with what they did? And I think that the answer to that is yes. Oh, there I agree. is, yeah, there. but there is nothing in this letter that
3: says Jeff has changed and reckoned with what he did. Just that Kyle is asserting that that is true. And that's, I mean, I have so many questions about this letter <laughs> I want to follow up. Mm-hmm. Um, but that was really, my first question is like, are those claims plausible? What has Jeff done? Right. How
1: how has Jeff reckoned with this? What consequences has Jeff suffered? Uh, in what ways has Jeff made meaningful amends? Um in, in what ways has Jeff reorganized his life? Because I got to say what this looks like to me is something that happens a lot, which is nothing really happens. No one really talks about it. Mm-hmm. Enough time passes that people just say, oh, he's changed. And they don't mean that he's changed.
3: They mean time has passed. Right. They mean the situation has changed because it's no longer freshly in the minds of people who know.
1: Right. Or, or, or maybe at most they mean something like, I don't believe he has committed sexual assault since then. Yeah. Which is not the same thing no. as um, meaningful restorative justice. No. So I, I would say almost before we talk about how the letter writer might want to consider talking to Sandra, um, I think the real issue is talking to your friends Anna and Kyle. Mm-hmm. I mean, that's the that's the primary relationship there for you, letter writer. Uh, They're good friends of yours uh, who are friends with someone who raped a friend of yours. So this is you're all very bound up in one another's lives. And it sounds like you have had a a part of a conversation with Kyle. It, it doesn't quite sound like you've pushed back or or asked further questions of Kyle. Like, what do you believe that Jeff has done? Um, Is this, in fact, a a meaningful change or is this collusion? Yeah. Um, What's the difference between
3: collusion and change? They say they're close friends with um, the person who Jeff raped. And so presumably, I do feel they would have mentioned, like, if that person thought that Jeff had changed and made amends to them— this letter would be totally different. So, I mean, I don't want to make too many assumptions, but that does say to me that Jeff has not made amends to this person. Right.
1: That seems like a detail they would have included.
3: Yeah. Yeah. Um, So what's your sort of
1: thought of what would be a good way forward for this letter writer?
3: I I definitely think that the letter writer should talk to Anna, Anna and Kyle and find out, you know, what, especially these, you know, they mention the, the claims that Kyle has made, that Jeff has changed. Like, what are, what are those claims? Is there a way to assess, like, the reasonableness of them or the plausibility? Um, yeah, there's, there's also
1: something that, that also jumps out to me is uh, the letter writer believes that if I were to talk to Sandra about the fact that her boyfriend raped a friend of mine, this would end my friendship with Anna and Kyle. And that, again, suggests to me that what they are calling changing and reckoning is, in fact, uh, enforced forgetfulness, uh, diminishing the seriousness of what he did, pretending everything is fine and papering over uh, a, a deeply violent violation of somebody else's uh, boundaries and, and, and right to bodily autonomy. So if if your friends, if you believe that on some level, simply talking about the fact that Jeff once committed rape would end your friendship with them, then I think your friendship with them needs to end. Because your friendship with them rests upon your pretending this guy didn't rape somebody. And that's not worth doing. There's it, no friendship that's worth doing that for.
3: It's certainly deeply troubling about the friendship. I mean, I just want to know more. I mean, my perspective on this, it's interesting. I read this question and I was like, wow, I actually have some deep feelings about this from my own experience, which is that I know that people can change. I actually have two people I've been close with in my past, actually, like past boyfriends, who in their youth both did commit sexual assault. Wow. And, yeah, Um And did change their lives because of it. Um, And to, like, take on practices around consent that made absolutely sure that they would never do that again. I'm not reading this into this situation. But I do, I have this other perspective where like I I want to be open to that you know because I think I mean partly it, it's an age that like you know was Jeff 17 years old at the time like it doesn't say I don't know I doubt it um, but I really want to be open to like because I do think that reconciliation and redemption is possible. And I
1: don't even know that reconciliation would be the right word here. I don't um, mean the two people like, involved. Right. I
3: mean like the larger...
1: Right. But but I, I think wanting to be committed to the idea of uh, restorative justice and mm-hmm. redemption is a good thing. It is not a good thing to take that hope and that fundamental optimism and to use it to ignore evidence to the contrary. Absolutely, um, And I think... Uh, it's also difficult because I think sometimes people will hear something like uh, restoration or, or or change or making an amends and thinking that means life goes back to normal. And mm-hmm. it doesn't. Mm-hmm. Um, meaningful change, um, accepting the consequences of what he did and trying to become a different person does not look like getting another girlfriend and never talking about it. Right. Ever. So I, but I think uh, to, to get back a little bit to like what can you letter writer mm-hmm. do next, mm-hmm. I think number one, you need to talk to your friend who was raped. Um, And you need to talk to them and find out, um, how are you doing and feeling? Um, I am deeply troubled by the fact that my friends are still close with this person. Um, If I were to talk about this with them, what would you be and not be comfortable with my saying? Do you want me you know, how do you want me to talk about this or not talk about this? I, I think that's the most important thing is what does your friend want? Because if it's, yes, it would mean a lot to me if you would speak up to them and say, if you guys continue to pretend everything is fine, you need to end the friendship. Or if they say, please do not mention me. I need to continue to avoid this situation. I don't want you to discuss me in any way. That's that's your number one, um, uh, I think, source of information that will direct your future actions is to find out what your friend wants. Absolutely. Uh, And then depending on how that goes, I think your first conversation should be with Anna and Kyle, either together or separately, depending on your relationship with them. And to say something that acknowledges, um, I have felt uncomfortable uh, about this for a long time, and I'm ashamed that I have not brought it up before. And I need to now. And I don't want to let the fact that I have sometimes avoided this conversation, you know, convince me to continue to avoid it now. This is a conversation that has to happen. Um, I don't know. I don't have sufficient evidence that Jeff has sufficiently acknowledged the seriousness of the crime that he committed. Um, I have not seen, you know, a meaningful attempt to deal with the consequences to change his life um, to, to change the way that he lives. Um, can you tell me what you have seen? And if their response is something like, he's really nice to me, mm-hmm. or I don't think he rapes other people now, or he's really nice to his girlfriend, that is an insufficient moral response. And your response to that needs to be, I cannot support this. I do not support this. This is not meaningful change, restitution, growth. This is collusion. And that will end your friendship with them. And that will be necessary.
3: Yeah. What's interesting to me is also that the question, the question the letter writer is really asking, am I morally obligated to tell Sandra the truth? I mean, what do you think about that one? This one is not thornier. It's less thornier morally and more kind of interpersonally right. or etiquette-wise, right. Thorny. I,
1: I I understand. You know, in part, what Sandra has put out in the world is I would want to know. If there is information I do not have about my partner, I would want to know it. Um, and so that's one clue for how to act. But I think the most important thing is to speak to your friend. yeah, um, Because your friend might say, Yes, I would want Sandra to know, but if there was any way Sandra would find out that it was me, I would not be comfortable with that. And then do that. Yeah. Um, so really, because your friend who was raped, it sounds like a lot of people have been looking out for how to help Jeff. And it doesn't sound like a lot of people have been figuring out how to support and help his victim. Yeah. The person who survived rape. At Jeff's hands. So I, I think that person needs to be your priority and you need to um, give them a lot of space and you like don't press them for an answer if they're like I'm not sure this is hard to think about. Say absolutely I will not do anything or say anything unless and until you tell me you're comfortable. That's number one I think. Um, and if your friend says yes um, here's something I'm comfortable with you sharing with Sandra then I think you can and should reach out and if your friend says no, then I think you should redirect your energy elsewhere. Like You can, you can also have the conversation with Anne and Kyle and then figure out, do I want to you know, volunteer or give money to an organization that helps support victims of rape and sexual assault? Um, how can I channel the energy and the desire to focus on people who have survived sexual violence um, in a way that also respects what my friend's wishes are? We took it all. ...is also devastating, um, but in a different direction. Yes. (laughs) Uh, So at least it's a different kind of devastation. The subject line of this is just sister destroying her marriage. Dear Prudence, my sister, Karen, married a widower with a six-year-old daughter named Polly and adopted her. My family has embraced Polly as one of our own, and my parents have become close to Polly's maternal grandparents. Karen has had some serious infertility problems, including three miscarriages and one stillbirth in the last five years. It's taken its toll on her, but what's worse... Karen's baby zealotry is destroying her family. Her husband has made alarming comments to my husband about the state of their marriage. Polly has told my daughters that her mom isn't really her mom and my mom wants a real daughter, not me. My mother has repeated similar comments to me and said that she is worried that Polly's maternal grandparents are going to, quote, do something drastic soon. I have reassured Polly that her mom and dad love her, but I know how volatile Karen can get. After she miscarried for the third time, I tried to reach out in sympathy since I had a miscarried pregnancy earlier that year too, but Karen told me that mine, quote, didn't count since I already had children and I was being greedy while she had nothing. I don't know what to do. Everything feels as fragile as a house of cards that will come down as soon as I breathe wrong. What can I do here?
0: Mm.
3: Oh, Polly. Yeah. I feel so bad for that kid. I do too. I mean, that my main response after reading this letter is just like, as many adults as possible in Polly's life need to just be as loving with her and just shower her with love and care and kind adult presence. Yeah, I, I mean, I cannot imagine a
1: six-year-old who has absorbed the lesson, my mom isn't really my mom, um, and she wants to have a real daughter, and that's not me. Uh, I, I mean, the vi- like the violation of her sense of personhood. Um, And and the fact that she should exist, that's just unspeakably painful. It is. It's so heartbreaking. Um, And yeah, you know, it sounds like uh, the letter writer mentions that um, there's some concern within the family that Polly's grandparents uh, are going to do something drastic, by which I, I imagine encourage their son to
3: divorce Karen or try to sue for custody or... Who's to say? That's where I would think, too. But it's, I mean, also Karen has adopted Polly, so they're pretty limited. Right. Right. I, I don't think they could actually. Do, yeah. um, as awful
1: as as what's been described sounds like, generally speaking, it, you know, it would be very difficult to get custody away from parents on, on the strength of she yeah. says terrible things. Yeah. Um, but... I, I understand that the letter writer feels like everything feels so delicate and like there's so few good options for me. But do you do you think that there's a step that this letter writer can take?
3: Absolutely. I mean, letter writer, I would say, you know, you can be a loving presence in your niece's life. You can tell her how much you love her and, you know, are so happy that she's part of your family. And, you know, that she's got these cousins, your children, who are happy that she's part of their family And, you know, that's I would I think that that's the role of the letter writer.
1: I think that's one big thing that they can do. I think also something that is within their um, uh, purview that they can do is talk to their brother in law. Um, I, 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 I know that that's a little, uh, kind of outside of the usual order of operations, um, but based on, you know, Karen's response to your attempts to bond before. And I'm just so sorry that she said that to you, by the way. Um, I, it is very clear that she has suffered in the extreme and that's very sad. Um, it's also not at all an appropriate justification for the way that she spoke to you or the way that she's speaking to her daughter. Yeah, I think that needs to be really clear. Um, but the fact that, you know, Her husband is talking to your husband. Polly is talking to you and your mother. Um, I I think you need to have a direct conversation with him and say, here are some things that Polly has told me. And they break my heart and I'm deeply troubled. Are you okay? What's going Hmm. on? What is happening inside of your marriage? Um, Okay, maybe that last question is a little (laughs) bit big. Um, But to say, like, are you okay? What's going on? What do you need?
3: Yeah. Um because he's clearly not happy with things. Yeah. And like and, what have you tried? Um, you know, what kind of conversational avenues have you tried with Karen to shift this baby zealotry right. and turn her attention back to her existing kid, her right. existing family. Right. Like is her husband is she saying these things in front of him? Um
1: does he say anything when she says those things to Polly? Um, What is he doing to parent his child um, with somebody who is, uh, you know, clearly, you know, suffering in the extreme, uh, quite possibly not receiving the emotional and mental health support that she needs, um, and also harming a child as a result of her pain, which is where it gets to a point of uh, more of you need to be speaking to her about this. And I'm aware that, that you're part of the reason, letter writer, you have been reluctant to speak to her about this is because, you know, she can get volatile. And obviously, it would be awful if you tried to speak to her about it. And her response was to shut you out of her life and to say, you don't get to see Polly anymore, which I feel like was an implicit fear in the volatility comment. Mm -hmm. Um, And I don't want that for you either. But that doesn't mean you guys should tiptoe around this. Um, I I think your best bet is to speak to your brother-in-law and to get a sense from him how aware is he of the seriousness of this problem in as much as it affects Polly? Uh, what can you do to help support him as he makes decisions based on what's best for his daughter? Because she should be his priority yeah. right now. I mean, helping Karen get the support that she needs and to, to make right what she has done wrong, that's also important. But Polly should be number one.
3: Yeah. Well, doing those things will also help Polly. Right. I think. So that's, you know, I see those as part of a larger set of activities that will... Um, you know, that will help Polly. If Karen gets some help, presumably she can resume. I mean, I have to assume that when she adopted Polly, you know, it it sounds like, it sounds to me like there's been a shift. right? You know, so if she can kind of re-access her her parental feelings um, or kind of get back in her Mm -hmm. right mind about Mm it.
1: Yeah, well, and there's also, I think, the possibility that and, and I again, I don't know the inner workings of Karen's minds, but I, it is also possible that she adopted Polly thinking this is fine, but my real children will come along biologically mm. like that's we don't know. Right. Yeah. No, that's true. Um, that's so true. I, I think rather than saying, I know you must have loved Polly before and we've got to get you back there. Mm-hmm. Um, I think the question needs to be, are you prepared to mother this child? Yeah. Are you prepared to be a loving parent to Polly, regardless of whether or not you have biological children? And that's a question that, you know, frankly, uh, her husband needs to be asking. Yeah. Um, And if, you know, uh, and that's not to say like overnight you need to get well right away. Um, But if she refuses to access support, if she refuses to acknowledge that there's a problem, if she just if her only response is, I have suffered so much that none of my behavior or actions can be questioned, um, then I think the husband will need to make some very difficult decisions. Yeah.
3: Um, I agree. I mean something the last line of this letter, everything feels as fragile as a house of cards that will come down as soon as I breathe wrong. Okay, that's the second to last mm-hmm. sentence. That I I kind of think, well, breathe wrong. Yeah. You know, like do you don't more than breathe wrong, like say what you need to say because this house of cards is not Good for this child, right? The goal is should, should not be down.
1: preserve this house of cards. Exactly, it should be build a new house. Yeah, there needs to be change. Yeah, serious change. And I'm just so sorry. It is so painful when you can see somebody harming a child like that, but it is not your child. Um, and all you can do is encourage and influence and support, rather than say, you know, if, if this were the husband writing to us, we could say, at the very least, if you do your due diligence and really you know, try to work through this together and you believe the answer is no. at least I could say, well, you could be a single parent, that would be better yeah, yeah. Um, than, than a lifetime of this. yeah um,
3: But also, I mean, you know my family has embraced Polly as one of our own. So the other family members I think can also really step in yeah. and just love this child yeah and and let your let your brother-in-law know we
1: are here for you. Um, we will we will do anything in our power. To spend time with Polly, to, to love her, to shower her in attention and affection, um, and, and to pick up the slack. Yeah. Um, and so, you know, like, let him know that you are there, um, because I think that that will be really helpful. Um, man. Yeah. Yeah. All right, we are moving into uh, slightly less, you know, like, life-altering <laughs> questions, which is really nice to yeah. kind of move towards stuff that is like, oh, this matters, but it's also, I'm going to be okay tomorrow. Yeah,
3: yeah. Like, and my kids are safe. There's easy There's easy advice yes. about this letter, I guess. Yes, yeah. So, yeah.
1: so I'm looking forward to hearing what is your easy <laughs> advice. I'm curious if it's the same as mine. So All the right. subject line of this letter is just photo letdown. Dear Prudence. My husband and I got married a couple of weeks ago in a destination wedding. We hired a photographer after a lot of research and spent a big part of our budget on her. We just got the photos back, and I'm so disappointed. The photographer's style is there, which I still love, but there are very few photos showing off the gorgeous venue and very few good ones of my husband and me. I don't even have a single picture with my parents. I don't know if it was my responsibility to be more proactive about telling her what I wanted in the moment, but it's the first time that I've gotten married, and the last, I hope. I'm so sad whenever I think about it even days later. I want to tell the photographer that I'm disappointed, but the only outcome I can see from that is hurting her feelings. I missed my only opportunity for great photos, and there's nothing more to be done here, right? Do I just need to get over this? Do I have any other options?
3: Well, I think first of all, yes, talk to her. Talk to the photographer. You don't have to. Giving constructive feedback and telling a service professional that their service did not meet your expectations if if they are truly a professional, it's not going to hurt their feelings. It's good information for them. They need to know it. Um, and they will, in all likelihood, it, like, again, if they're any kind of professional, they will want to try to make it right with you. Yeah, it's possible that they have some,
1: like, B-roll on their camera that they haven't sent. Um, and also, this is not a conversation where you have to say... I hate you, you're a monster. Exactly. Um, like, you you have both positive and negative feedback to give this person, right? Like, you can say, thank you so much. Um, I loved your style. Um, that that part was wonderful. Uh, I realize, I wish I had said something in the moment um, because I would love to have more pic- pictures of me and my family or pictures of the venue. Do you happen to have any more? Um, and if the answer is no, you can say, you know, uh, obviously at this point there's nothing we can do, but... Uh, in the future, I hope uh, you can either ask more questions of, of the uh, people getting married uh, in question or um, try to get more family photos. And that's also something on you. Like, yes, probably you could have said in the moment, I want to make sure I get pictures of my family. It's also understandable that on your wedding day you were distracted. Um, you know, it's it's both our responsibility to let other people know what we want, um, and it's also a photographer's job to do their best to anticipate the needs of their client. Um, so you don't have to say, like, you did a bad job, you're you're bad, uh, but you can say, I wish I had done this. Maybe in the future it would be helpful in case somebody like me forgets to think about it on the day of because they've got so much to think about. Uh, and you can say that kindly and professionally. Uh, you can also, by the way, uh, ask around people who attended the wedding because often People take pictures on their phones. Yes.
3: That was another piece of advice I had. Just put out the call to all your guests and say, hey, I would love to have you share your pictures with me. Um, And I'm particularly looking for pictures of the venue and pictures with my family. Yeah. Um, And I would, with the photographer, I wouldn't just say, I wouldn't just ask, do you have any of these? I would say, can you send me all of your raw files? Okay. Um, Because also some of them, um, you know, if some of the things that are not that good, Um, maybe some of them can be fixed with some post-processing, some Photoshopping, um, you know, and if you have the raw files, you might be able to seek the help of another professional to do that. And that way you're also not relying on the photographer to guess what you might want. You get to look at everything and you might find some gems in there that she didn't think um, were good enough to share with you. And one other thing, I mean, I would take a look at your contract and see, you know, is there – Is there some sort of financial recourse? Um, Yeah. Or if you, you know, in this feedback conversation, particularly if you're calm and respectful, you know, the photographer may offer you a discount on the services and you could then maybe use that money to hire another photographer. I know it's not the same. You're not going to be at the destination. You're not going to be in the venue. But, you know, sometimes in this situation when people aren't happy with their pictures, they do get back dressed up in their wedding gear And have another photo shoot. Um, I mean, you can do that. That sounds like a total nightmare. I mean, I would never. But I hate posing for pictures. (laughs) I would never, ever do that because, yeah, Yeah. I also hate posing for pictures. But it's totally an option. Yeah. Yeah. You have a lot of options here. It's also okay to be sad. Like, this is,
1: you know, I think you are aware on some level this is not the biggest problem in the world. Um, But it's also just okay to say, I'm sad. I wish I had anticipated this. I wish the photographer had done something different. We do have things that we can do to make up for it. But I just want to acknowledge that I feel sad about this. And, you know, let that motivate you on future, you know, holidays, family get togethers, anniversaries, birthdays, what have you, to take a lot of pictures. Um, If pictures are meaningful to you, especially when it comes to marking significant uh, events, take a lot of pictures. And congratulations on having a beautiful wedding recently at a destination location. That sounds wonderful. Ooh, this next one. I uh, I love. I I, I have <laughs> infinite patience for questions about like friends splitting the bill on things, and I could just deliver oh. opinions
3: for days on that. Awesome. Well, I will read, Thank and you. then you'll deliver an opinion, and I will I will uh, either have fight me or <laughs> on it. Yeah. I I doubt that I will want to fight you, but we'll see. Yeah. So the subject of this one is cheapskate friend, dear Prudence. I have dinner once a week, every week, with my friend Linda. We have it worked out so that Linda pays for both of our dinners one week, I pay for both the next, and so on back and forth. The past few times we've gone out on Linda's week to pay, she has suggested we only order one entree and split it because, quote-unquote, we don't need all that food anyway. On my week to pay, though, we order two meals like usual. Linda is financially secure and has a much higher salary than mine, but she has never liked spending her money, so I know she is just being cheap. If we are going to continue to go out, though, I want my own meal. She and I have different tastes, and I like to have leftovers for later. Is there a way to tactfully bring this up with her? She gets very defensive about money, and she even gets angry when having to spend it on just about anything. I have two pieces of advice. One of the first is
1: reconsider whether you enjoy having lunch with Linda once a week, every week. And the second one is get separate checks.
3: Oh, yeah. I mean, the separate checks thing. Absolutely. Like, stop this. This is not working for off. either one of you. Yeah. No, it's crazy. Just pay for your own food. Each of you. Yeah. Yeah. No.
1: Uh Obviously, there's different dynamics in the friendship that you may want to address uh, if it feels like not just during these lunches, but at other times you feel like you have to manage her anger about having to spend money on things. Um, But uh, the solution to this right here is split checks. And it's okay if she gets miffed. Like, I I think there's this is another one of those letters where it's like my friend gets mad a lot and that is not an acceptable outcome to me. So I'm doing a lot to make sure that they don't get
3: mad. But they still get mad because they want to get mad at stuff. Yeah. But Linda's defensiveness about talking about money, letter writer, it is not your problem. Right. (laughs) Yeah. And so
1: when she says, let's only order one entree because we don't need all that food anyway, you get to say, actually, I do need all that food. Yeah. I want all that food. Let's get separate checks. And then Linda can order the cheapest thing that she wants and offer a stingy tip. I am really projecting on the Linda here. (laughs) Um, And you can get all the food you want to eat. Um and tip as much as you want. Yeah. Split the check. And it's only two people. It's not like you're out to dinner with six or seven and, and the poor like server has to deal with a bunch of different credit cards. Separate checks for a two person yeah. table is fine.
3: Yeah. It's yeah. totally reasonable. It's totally simple. And if Linda gets mad at you for wanting to do this, just That's an acceptable you know? outcome. Yeah. yeah. Like this is what you need and it shouldn't I mean Yeah. Yeah. It's not a big deal. Yeah. Uh, So
1: the current situation is not working out for you. And so you get to say, let's just split the check. And she can't force you to not do that, right? Like, I know it can feel like, but if she gets mad, I will just die. You won't die. She'll just be mad. Yeah, And you can say, nope, I want to order as much food as I want. So let's split the check so that you don't have to cover me. Yeah.
3: And if she gets mad, I mean, she will get over it. And if she does not get over it, then that is a friendship that is fine yeah. to let go. You can, like,
1: reevaluate. You 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 can get dinner once a month or something or just, you know, catch up sometimes over coffee. Like, you don't have to, like, friend dump her over yeah. this. But, uh, you know, if you offer a pretty reasonable solution and she's a total jerk about it,
3: you might want to reevaluate how close you would like to be with this person. Yeah. I mean, I find the, this line, is there a way to tactfully bring this up with her? It is not untactful to say... I don't want to split a meal. Yeah. I would like to have my own meal. Yeah. That is a perfectly tactful thing to say. Yeah. I want to eat what I want to eat is an enormously
1: tactful thing (laughs) to say. Yeah. Yeah. Go for it. Yeah. I like leftovers. I don't want to split an entree. All of that is tactful. None of that is rude. Yeah. Um, Linda is being rude and you are worried about making her mad, so you're trying to be extra polite to make up for her politeness deficit, but that is not going
3: to be your solution. Well, you know, I can say one more thing, actually, about this cheapskate friend, which is, I mean, I I stand by everything we have said. And I do feel a little bit cautious around, you know, letter writer, you are making some assumptions about Linda's finances and her financial security. And, you know, she might have crushing student loans. She might be supporting other people. You you may not know. I mean, I agree. Like, the splitting the entree thing is a bridge too far. Yeah, But I am— Really reluctant to make assumptions right. about people's
1: finances Even in that if you way. think somebody is financially secure, they may not be. Yeah. Um, there's often, uh, you know, a lot of people don't want to seem like they're financially insecure because a lot of times, you know, they'll get judgment passed on them. Yeah. Um, so I would just say don't worry about whether or not Linda is financially secure. I would agree with that. That doesn't need to be the justification for your decision. Um, yeah. Like whether or not she had a lot of debt to deal with,
3: it is still okay for you to pay for your own meal. Oh, so. absolutely. And if she's like, I really can't afford it, then you can do something else like cook dinner at home together. Yeah. Good luck. Please let us know how that
1: goes and whether or not you and Linda still have a standing dinner date after this. All right. So next up, we've got a voicemail.
2: Hi, Prudence. My name is Kate. I am calling with a problem with my mom. I love her very much, but whenever we talk on the phone, which to be honest, is usually five or six times a week, which is more than I would like to talk on the phone. But whenever we talk on the phone, uh, we always end up talking about her and it's not that I'm not willing to talk about her. It's not that I hate talking about her life, but we just sort of cycle through the same subjects each time we talk on the phone, her job, money, dating, etc. cetera. Um, it's not that I feel like I need to talk about myself all the time. It's just that I want to be able to express to her that I want her to care about me as well I don't want to just butt in with, so anyways, about my life. But in any case, if you have any advice for how to uh, get my mom to reciprocate a conversation rather than be one-sided, that would be great. Thanks.
1: Oh, listeners, I sure wish you could have seen our faces (laughs) when we heard that line about five or six times a week. How do we feel about talking to our mom five or six times a week for this uh, caller. We feel that's too many times. We sure fucking do. Whew. Yeah. Wow. Uh, So a lot of options for you. Which so is many options. Great, because so far you've tried nothing, um, which is not like a criticism of you. It's just really good news because it means there's a lot of things you can
3: try. So many things. Um, I'm actually I feel really hopeful for you, letter writer, because yes. I feel like there's so much. And you say it right in your in your voicemail. You love your mom. Mm-hmm. You know you have a good relationship with your mom. So this is fantastic. Yeah. So I think you can
1: absolutely address with your mother the fact that when you guys talk, it's very one sided. That's its own issue. The other issue is talking on the phone five or six times a week, and that's real separate. And that's one where you get to not answer her calls and maybe send her a text that says, don't have time to talk today. I'll give you a call Thursday. Uh, You do not have to talk to her five to six times a week. Good gravy. Yeah. Stop talking to her five or six times a week. That's off the table. Um, I don't even want you talking to her two or three times a week. I want you once a week. Once a week is perfect. We are putting you on a talking to your mom diet. <laughs>
3: we are done with that. Yeah. That's, that's over. Once a week is a wonderful frequency to talk to your mom as an adult. That is it's close. Perfect.
1: Yeah. Talking to your mom on the phone once a week. Fantastic. Yeah. Um, And frankly, if somebody wants to talk to their mom five or six times a week and it's working for both of them, it seems like a lot, but that's fine. Great. You're really close. Wonderful. Enjoy that. But five or six times a week when all you're doing is going, "Uh uh-huh. Yeah. uh Uh-huh. That does sound difficult. That is no, that's not working for either of you. That's not good. Yeah. No, no, it's not. Um, So, you know, when your mom, my guess is your mom calls more than you call. I I would imagine. It sounds like it's your mom calling a lot. Um, And you can say, I don't have time to talk today. I'll call you Thursday. And if she, you know, is like, no, it's really urgent that I talk to you today. You get to say things like, I can't talk on the phone every day. I'll call you Thursday. That doesn't work for me. Um, Which sound like awful, cruel things to say. They're not. It's a very normal and okay thing to say. Totally normal. You can even say, I love you, mom. I'm super busy today. Yep. Yep. Or even just, I don't have time to talk today. Like, you don't even have to start going into what you're busy with. I don't Mm. know if your mom's the kind of person who would say, well, what about if you call me before you go to bed? Um, Like, because that's a good
3: point. You Because sometimes responses to
1: that are, oh, you're really busy, but you want to talk to me as much as I want to talk to you. Let me find a solution. When what Mm. you really want to say to your mom is, I am not available to talk today. Not help me solve a problem so that I can talk to you today. And good luck. Keep us posted on how that goes. And if nothing else, please, please, please stop taking five or six of her calls a week. Just, it is okay to not pick up. My goodness. Yeah. Five or six times a week. I'm going to be thinking about that a lot tonight as I try to fall asleep. (laughs) And I love my mom. She's a wonderful lady. She's great. Yeah. We do not talk six times a week. I love my mom. We talk every two weeks. It's fantastic. I do send her a lot of memes. Mm. So there is that, um, Lisa. Thank you so much. This was such a delight.
3: Thank you. I really, really enjoyed fixing everyone's problems with I, you. I, I did too. I didn't realize this was such a like family
1: and particularly like mother heavy episode, but it was great. I think we healed the world. Yeah. Thanks for listening to Dear Prudence. Our producer is Audrey Dillon. Our theme music was composed by Robin Hilton. Don't miss an episode of the show. Head to slate.com slash dear prudence to subscribe. And remember, you can always hear more prudence by joining Slate Plus. Go to slate.com slash plus to sign up. If you want me to answer your question, call me and leave a message at 401 371 dear that's 3327, and you might hear your answer on an episode of the show. You don't have to use your real name or location, and at your request, we can even alter the sound of your voice. Keep it short. 30 seconds, a minute tops. Do you love sports, but hate the never-ending arguments of sports TV talk shows? Check out Slate's Hang Up and Listen. It's a weekly conversation about sports, athletes, and what they can teach us about society. Download and subscribe to Hang Up and Listen with your podcast app of choice to get a new episode every Monday.
0: Anatomy of an Ad